How is everybody today? Good? Glad you're here. Welcome to you. Um, we are working through some of Jesus' parables. There are 38 of them, and we're not going to do a series that's 38 weeks long, but we are going to look at a few of these, and today we're going to be back in Luke chapter 18, so if you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to be. Uh, in the South, and we have some guests here from um, Boston, and so this will be helpful to them, but in the South, we have sayings, and so um, you can get an education if you don't know these this will be helpful to you. So, when I say it, you tell me what it means, okay? That's how we're going to kind of interact here early on. Oh, uh, this one, okay, um, I'm, I'm reading them. I'm not going to show them. If you say, she ain't got the good sense God gave a goose, what does that mean? She ain't dumb as a rock. Uh, no, that means that she doesn't have good sense. That kind of explains itself. He's been rode hard and put up wet. Kind of, he kind of overdid. Uh, this one you'll know. Uh, he fell out of the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. <laughs> means he's unattractive. That dog won't hunt. It's not going to work. It's a bad idea. Okay, how about this one? Um, if he were an inch taller, he'd be round. <laughs> That's gold. Uh, I don't care who you are. How about, um, my daddy used to use this one all the time. He's tighter than bark on a tree. It means he's cheap. That's right. That's right. Uh, if you're standing in tall cotton, what does that mean? It's good. You're doing good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about, he's a few sh uh, fries short of a happy meal. That, that's not nice. It's not nice. And then the one we're going to talk about today a little bit is, uh, if somebody is too big for the britches, what does that mean? kind of a little bit arrogant, right? A little bit too, too big for their britches is not a good thing to say about a person. Evidently, uh, Davy Crockett came up with this expression, which is really interesting to me. Uh, Andrew Jackson was uh, leading uh, uh, some military uh, 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 skirmishes and was winning, and he was taking credit for the wins, and Davy Crockett didn't like that he was taking all the credit for stuff that everybody was doing, and so he called him too big for his britches. Now, Jesus tells these amazing little stories that we call parables. They are they're intricate and deep, and yet they're simple, and you can understand them. And Jesus tells them to make a point. Now, to get the full, um, get the full meaning of them, a lot of times you have to know the context. And we're going to explain a little bit of the context today. But the thing about being too big for your britches have you ever known anybody like that? Don't point. Uh, have you ever known anybody like that? Have you ever been anybody like that? Yeah. I know this. Sometimes it happens to the best of us. We get a little bit too prideful. And so Jesus begins to tell this parable. Now the guy that wrote this down is a dude named Luke. You can see Luke 18. And it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness, if Luke had been southern, he would have written, To those who were too big for their britches and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And he sort of sets everybody up for what is about to unfold. Now, there are two main characters. In fact, there are only two characters in this story. Two men went up from the temple to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And to understand the story completely, you have to understand the dynamic of these two uh, distinctly polar opposite individuals. A Pharisee would have been a male. 
He would have been prominent in his community and everyone would have respected him. Just like pastors uh, today. Um, he was well-versed in Scripture. He did kind of all the right things. He was sort of the creme de la creme. People looked up to him. And he, um, he wore a flowing robe. And he had a head garment. And he looked down on other people. It would be... Um, it would be like, I don't know, the way Tennesseans look at you know, Kentuckians, you know, with, with their uh, overalls and their teeth and everything, uh, acting like they're better than somebody. So the Pharisee was this guy that was prominent and lauded, and people um, thought very much of them. In fact, so Jesus tells the story, and when he says this part, the understanding of the audience would have been, okay, there's a villain and there's a hero here, but in their minds, the hero would have been the Pharisee, and the villain would have been the tax collector, because everything good about the Pharisee is what's bad about the tax collector. He was someone who worked for the government. He also was Jewish, but in, in Jewish society it kind of went like this. Um, when you were young, you learned the, the Bible. The first five books of the Old Testament are called the Pentateuch. And so you learned that kind of early on in school. And if you were super bright, now you have to understand, some of these people would memorize all of that. <laughs> they were really smart. And if you were really smart and you um, could get into like Pharisee school or you could get into rabbi school, to, to be a rabbi you had to follow a rabbi and rabbis only pick the best of the best. And so if you're super bright, you might be a rabbi. This is why when Jesus walks by people and says, come follow me, those guys drop everything because to follow a rabbi was the best thing you could do. It, it, there was nothing better. It would be like being offered a scholarship to Harvard or Yale. It's kind of that kind of feel to it. And so, or Kentucky. Uh, and so uh, uh, you drop everything and go. Now, if you weren't quite at that level, and not everybody is, then you would go work in the family business. Uh, Peter and James, they were fishermen because their dad was a fisherman. That's kind of how it worked. Everybody was a fisherman. If, if, you were, if your dad was, a, if your dad was a baker, you became a baker. If your dad was a carpenter, became a carpenter. And then there were people who rebelled. These are people like tax collectors or prostitutes. And tax collectors, they decided that they, they, they liked money more than they liked the um, reputation, their reputation. And so in the community, nobody liked a tax collector. The worst kept secret in the Jewish world was that the tax collectors were given a quota and anything over the quota they got to keep. And so the more taxes they could extract, the more they got to keep. And nobody liked a tax collector. The only people that came to a tax collector party were other tax collectors, prostitutes, and Duke Blue Devil fans. It's in the Bible. Trust me, don't look it up. Uh, anyway, anyway, if somebody called you a tax collector, then you were going to have to throw hands because that was the worst thing you could be called. The Pharisee was the most religious, the most respectable, the most honored. The tax collector on the 
other end of the scale was the most hated, despised, and contemptible. And the two of them go up to the temple to pray. Now, this happened twice a day. Uh, at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m., twice a day, the people who lived in and around Jerusalem would go up the temple steps and into the temple because that's when a sacrifice would be made. And you would go into the temple courts to pray. That means they went in there to worship. And things happened in there. There would be a priest and he would offer a blessing to you. Uh, there would be incense that they would burn. And so this whole moment, every day, twice a day, was... A spectacle. Something kind of big. Uh, I haven't been to Disney World in a long time, or Disneyland, or whatever the one is in Florida is. I haven't been there in a long time, but I think every night they set off fireworks. Is that right? Okay, same thing. Um, we have a, an amusement park in Cincinnati, where, you know, kind of where I used to grow up, uh, where I grew up. And same thing, at night, you'd, you'd stay late because you get to see the fireworks. Uh, and it's a spectacle. It happened every day. Well, at the temple... At 9 a.m., 3 p.m., every day there was a sacrifice and it was a big event and everybody wanted to be there. Now, the thing about the sacrifice was you went into the temple courts because you wanted the sacrifice that was being offered to be applied to you. And the idea was the closer I can get to the sacrifice, the more maybe it will rub off on me. It will apply to me. And so that's why they go there to worship. Now, it goes on. The Pharisee stood by himself. A couple things here. Notice he's standing when he prays. Nothing wrong with that. You can pray in any posture you want to. He stands, the idea is he would stand and look to heaven, and he stood by himself to pray. Now, he wanted people to see him, it's not as if he stood uh, in an inobscure place. In fact, he would take a very prominent place. He would stand really close to where the sacrifices were being offered. He wanted people to notice him. He didn't want to associate with people, but he did want people to notice him. Everything about the Pharisees was about being noticed. They were good for a reason. They liked being good, and they liked the acclaim of being good. Look at his prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. What a great way to start praying. I'm not like robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. He had a superiority complex. His prayer really isn't to God. He mentions God's name, but that's out of obligation more than anything else. If you'll notice, five times in two verses he mentions himself. He's really praying to himself. He doesn't ask God for anything because basically what he's saying is, I'm so good, I don't need anything from you. That's what he's kind of saying here. He really isn't thanking God for anything other than how good he is. And even then he's sort of taking credit for it himself. He does name names, which you kind of have to admire. Uh, he talks about robbers, evil duels, adulterers, and the tax collector that was also in his midst. And when he says he fasts twice a week, does anybody know 
the prescribed amount of fasting that one should do as a Jew. Jews were prescribed to fast a certain amount of times a year. Does anybody know how many times? Once a year. One time a year they were supposed to fast. These cats fasted twice a week. I'm no mathematician, but that's like 104 times more than they're supposed to. It's a lot of times more. They would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Would you like to know why? Sure you would. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays because most of the people came to the temple on Mondays and Thursdays. And so, when they were fasting, they would look disheveled. They would kind of suck in their cheeks just so you'd know. Uh, <laughs> they want you to know. Everything about their persona was notice how righteous I am. If there was one word to describe the Pharisees, it would be proud. They were proud of themselves. They were proud of how they behaved. They were proud of their tithing. That was interesting too. I tithe everything I get. Well, some things they tithed on that had already been tithed on. They would tithe on top of the tithe. They wanted people to, they didn't give to other people and help people, but boy, they sure did all the rules so that they would look like they were better than everybody else. They, they did things to be better than everybody else and they thought they were better than everybody else. And that was the prayer of the Pharisee. And the audience in Jesus' time would have said, yeah, sounds about right. They, they might have heard prayers like that. In fact, in my research, I saw a couple of prayers that basically said this very same thing. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile. I'm, I'm, thank you, I'm Jewish. Thank you, God, that I have the law. They don't, you know, that kind of thing. Thank you, God, I'm better than other people. Those prayers were prominent from Pharisees. So when Jesus tells this part of the story, nobody's shocked. And then the whole story sort of turns. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's break it down just a little bit. Let's notice his location. Now, whereas the Pharisee would have stood in the most prominent place, not really with people, but around people, this guy goes into the corner as far away as he can because he doesn't feel like he's worthy to be even close to the sacrifice. Doesn't even feel worthy to be in the room. He stood at a distance. And there's a word for this. It's called humility. God loves it. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And this poor tax collector, he wouldn't have been poor, he would have been rich, but this man stood as far away from the sacrifice as he could, hoping that maybe just a little bit of it would apply to him. He wanted it to apply to him. So the first thing, his location, he is as far away as he can be. The second, notice his posture. He would not even look up to heaven. He bowed his head. Now, this is the way we pray today. It's kind of the way that Americans do it or Westerners do it. But in the East, it's kind of not done. You'd, you'd look to God when you prayed. These guys looked down. Now, have you, ever, have you ever talked to somebody that wouldn't look you in the eye? 
It's a little sketch, right? So a few months ago, we were, looking, uh, we were looking to buy a car, and we talked to a guy, and I was talking to him, and Miriam was there, and I was talking to him, and after the conversation was over, in a, in a conversation about buying a car, I'm asking, you know, you know uh, give me the mileage, you know, how much mileage does it get, where, how many miles are on it, where you've been driving, that kind of thing. Miriam was looking at him, and when it was over, she said, he never would look you in the eye. Well, we don't buy cars from people that don't look you in the eye. I mean, that's just not what you do. And so, we, we decided to go a different direction. He wouldn't even look to heaven because he felt guilty. I had friends, now, not me. I'd like that to be clear. I had friends when I was younger who would get in trouble with the principal or uh, their parents, you know. And the stories I heard from my friends who got in trouble were that they had a difficulty looking in their parents' eyes or their principal's eyes because they felt this, this weight of guilt. And so, he wouldn't even look to heaven. Notice something else. He beat his chest. Really interesting. Now, in Jewish social life, when one was deeply moved, you might put your hands over your heart and bow your head. This was a posture that is common in the Eastern culture. Even today, it's common to, to hold your hands over your heart and to pray. But this man was so moved that he began to ball his hands into a fist, and he began to beat on his chest. And it is, a, it is something in Middle Eastern culture that's just a symbol of extreme sorrow. It's not just I'm sad, I don't have my, hand, my head down, I, I am sad, but I am broken sad. It's beyond being sad. It's, it's like the next level sad. If you've ever been to a funeral where there's no hope, you see people that are broken. They weep and they, they wail because they have no hope. And this guy was broken and he begins to beat his chest. I'm going to show you a text in Scripture. I've got to be honest with you. I've, I've read through the Bible hundreds of times. I know I've read through the New Testament hundreds of times. This is a text I've read before. I know I've read before because I've read it. I mean, I've, I've been through the Bible a few times. I've never noticed this. But Jesus was crucified. Look at this text. Then the centurion, seeing what had happened after Jesus was crucified and died, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. And when all the people who had gathered to witness this saw uh, this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Two times in Scripture, it talks about beating your breast. This parable and here. Never in the Old Testament, only two times in the New Testament, and once when Jesus was telling the story. You talk about getting someone's attention. Everyone listening to the story would have said, Wow, that, that never happens. Listen to this. This was done, uh, there's, uh, one writer talks about it this way. Women customarily beat on their chest at funerals, but men do not. Never done by men, hardly ever. 
For men, it is a gesture of extreme sorrow and anguish almost never used. It's little wonder that in all of biblical literature we find this particular gesture mentioned only in this account of this parable and at the cross. And then he writes this, it takes something of the magnitude of the crucifixion of the Savior to evoke this gesture from Middle Eastern men. This is a man who understands how severely separated from God he is. And he can literally not stand it. And so he beats his own chest. Can you imagine that scene? You show up at the temple. You're waiting for the sacrifice. You're waiting for the priest to offer you a blessing. And there in the corner is a man likely wailing beating his chest, something you would hardly ever see. It would have been remarkable. And Jesus tells this story and He's saying, one man was proud and the other was broken. One took center stage and wanted to be noticed. One took the corner and hoped that no one would see Him other than God. If Jesus could not draw a stronger comparison here, a contradiction of characters, it is, it is, hey, I'd like you to see how incredibly different these two people are. And then notice His request. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In the Hebrew, in the Greek language, this was written in Greek, in the Greek language it literally says, God have mercy on me, the sinner. He, he's, think about this. One dude is saying, hey, I'm better than everybody else. This guy is saying, there's no one worse than me. Kind of remarkable. Jesus is a master storyteller. Now, let's concentrate on this text just for a second. I want to notice a couple things about God's mercy. One is, the first thing you need to notice is it's part of His DNA. It is kind of who He is. Now, the tax collector would be a Jew. He's Jewish. He would have learned the, the, the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In those books, there are expressions of God. And there's one time where where God describes Himself. Now, if you're at a party and you meet somebody new, you ask questions. Hey, tell me about yourself. We ask that question all the time. Hey, what do you do for a living? Or you might say, are you married? Or do you have kids? How old are they? Do they have kids? I love it when people ask me uh, if Elise is my grandkid. I love that. It's great. I tell them to shut up and go away. Uh, in the love of Jesus, of course. I remember we were trick-or-treating one time. She was little and they were like, is this your granddaughter? I was like, no, it's not. It's my daughter. Uh, I'm just old. Uh, I had kids old. Is that okay with you? Uh, anyway, I'm not, it doesn't hurt me now. Uh, but anyway, I'm over that. So we ask people, hey, tell me about yourself. Okay, so God has an opportunity to tell us about Himself in Exodus. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate... And merciful. First thing he says about himself, compassionate, 
merciful, slow to anger, abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who gives wrongdoing, who forgives wrongdoing, violations of His law and sin. God is about mercy and forgiveness. And in the Hebrew language, which Exodus would have been written in, there are three words for mercy. They're all found here. They're translated into English as compassionate, merciful, abounding in faithfulness and love. Here's a good definition of mercy. Mercy is God's steadfast love that withholds the wrath we deserve. It's God's love not giving you what you the punishment you deserve. All right. So you're driving home from church this afternoon. And you're not paying attention to the speed limit. And there is a fine officer of the law strategically parked in a speed trap and you zoom through and he pulls you over and he comes to the window and what does he say? Y'all know. I know you know. Do you know what you were doing? I hate that. Which, when, did you, when did you see me? Uh, you know, uh, uh, which thing do you, want to, do you want me to confess to? And then he'll say something like, did you know you were going you know, 57 in a 45? It's like, <sighs> only when you caught me, I was doing 60. Uh, good. Only 57? That's, that's not what you say, by the way. Only 57? Uh, can I have your license and registration? What? Proof of insurance. Ronnie knows. Uh, proof of insurance. <laughs> you want to tell the rest of it? I mean, Ronnie knows it all. <laughs> and he goes back to his car. I'll be right back. And why do they take so long? Like, hustle. I mean, I got, I got places to be. Obviously, I'm speeding. Uh, and so, they go back to the car. Now, you're watching, right? You're, you're, you're fuming, but you're watching. He's back there. Now, this is what you don't want. You don't want to see this. Because what does that mean? you about to get a ticket. That's what that means. What you want is him typing. You know, if he's typing, he's going to see you're not a, a felon. You know, that's good. You're not on the lamb or anything like that. And, but if he's writing, I have never not gotten a ticket. I always get a ticket. Uh, that's why I don't speed much anymore. And so, much. Uh, and... And he comes back to the window, and the thing you want to hear more than anything is, I'm going to give you a warning. Those are, are there any more sweet words in the English language? I'm going to let you off with a warning. Slow it down. Mr. Vest, here's what, if you're a preacher, what you say is, uh, sir, I was on the way to a funeral. Uh, what, do you, what do they do with that? You know, uh, one of my parishioners is in the hospital. I have to get there. Uh, but no, I don't do that. But anyway, um, I'd like to give, I'm going to let you off with the warning. And that is the picture of mercy. You deserve a ticket. You deserve it. 
You, you might say something lame like, I think my speedometer's broken. <laughs> that don't work. Uh, you deserve a ticket. Mercy is when he says, I'm going to let you off with a warning. You see grace and mercy in Scripture connected all the time. They're basically two sides of the same coin. Mercy is not getting the punishment you deserve. Grace is getting a gift you don't deserve. They're different, but sort of the same. Mercy, you don't get the punishment you deserve. Grace, you get a gift you don't deserve. You see it throughout Scripture. In Lamentations, it says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. That's who He is at His core. Whenever you do a funeral, you, you talk about the person's nature. What is their nature? And so, when I'm talking to a family, I'll say, well, tell me about your mom. Tell me about your dad. And then, you know, he was always smiling. He was always helping people. He was always working on his car. Uh, she was always baking pies for the church, church socials. Uh, she was always helping people. She was always inviting into her home. That was her nature. That's what we talk about. The nature of God is He is merciful. His mercies never cease because that's who He is at His core. He, he is just merciful. And compassionate and patient. I heard about a lost dog. They had a flyer up on the telephone pole. It read like this Reward for lost dog. He's only got three legs, should be easy to find. He's blind in the left eye. He's missing a right ear. His tail has been broken off. He was neutered accidentally by a fence. He's almost deaf, and he answers to the name Lucky. Well, he's lucky because somebody's looking for him. And I feel a lot like that dog sometimes. I'm kind of I'm dinged up. There are times in my life I've made mistakes. I've sinned. I, I have rebelled. Like that dog. I'm glad somebody cares enough to put up a wanted poster to come and try to find me. The first thing that we need to understand is mercy is God's DNA. The second thing is that mercy isn't self-generated. I can't earn it on my own. Look, look back at this. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, I thank you I'm not like other people. He's basically saying, I know I sometimes need forgiveness, but I've earned it. You owe me what he's saying God you you owe me he sees everybody else's sin and he ignores his own the tax collector realizes that mercy comes from the outside not the inside here's what's really interesting about these two guys being Jewish they have the same God they believe in the same God being Jewish they believe in the same scriptures being Jewish, they believe in forgiveness. Except one thinks he can earn it. One thinks he must earn it. And the other throws himself 
on the mercy of the court because he knows he'll never earn it. Here's what happens. With somebody like the tax collector, they feel as if they've dug such a deep hole they can never get out. Like, I, I, I have done so many things wrong, God can never forgive me for all of that. And so, the tax collector throws himself the mercy of the court. The Pharisee, he recites his resume. Look at how good I am. Isn't that what a resume is? Hey, hire me because I'm really, really good. One time I had a resume and I had a cover letter. This is what I put on there. It's been said I'm one of the best preachers in America. I put that on there. Yeah. The next line was this. Of course, it was my mother who said that. So you, you, you have to take it with a grain of salt. This guy is saying, the, the Pharisee is saying, God, I am so good. You kind of have to forgive me. And Jesus is making this amazing distinction. And what we do with God's mercy is up to us. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a guy named David. David is, is called a man after God's own heart, but man, he made mistakes. He made such big mistakes. He, he was a huge sinner. Um, there's a time where David should have been at war, but he wasn't. He was in his palace and he looks over the balcony and he sees this woman and he, uh, she's beautiful and, and he calls her into his, uh, his, uh, his home and, and he has an illicit relationship with her and that uh, results in her pregnancy. And, and so to cover that up, he, he has her husband killed. I mean, David does things... It's, it's like a movie. It's like a, a novel. He does things. But, but there's me. And there's you. And I don't know about you, but I do things, and I think to myself, how could I do that? Why did I do that? Just the other day, I was heading up Wade Hampton, and I was going to turn right on Reed School Road, the very first traffic light up here. And I, I was... I had a safe distance between me and the other car. Elise is learning to drive and I'm trying to model it. You know, that kind of thing. And So I had a nice safe distance from me to the other car. And some um, little punk in one of those little uh, uh, fast and furious cars zips in, in front of me. Mm-hmm. I'm so close to the church I couldn't honk. It felt wrong. But I was mad. I admit I'm mad. So we both turn right onto Reed School Road, and this joker turns left into the gas station, which he could have gone straight and turned into the gas station. I was so mad. My blood pressure was high. I'm nobody's in the car, so you can say what you want. Uh, I I was mumbling to myself. Like Bugs Bunny, that wrestling, wrestling. You know, I was doing that. And I got about a block past that guy turning, and I thought to myself, who cares? I mean, yeah, that was not smart. And he really, but in the big scheme of things, who cares? I got home, I had supper, I'm here. 
Nobody hit me. I mean, it was, who cares? But we all have a tendency to do stuff and we go, what in the world do I do this? So David has committed these atrocities. He's committed adultery. He's impregnated a woman who's not his wife. In fact, she's somebody else's wife. He then has her husband put on the front lines at war, so he, he's killed. I mean, these are gross uh, uh, um, sins against God. And there's a guy named Nathan. He's the prophet. <laughs> Nathan confronts the king. You talk about moxie. That brother had moxie. He also said I had a side hustle. Uh, hot dogs. Uh, Nathan goes to the king and he says, Brother, you have committed sin. Now look at David's response. He prays and he says, look, look how close this is to what the tax collector prayed. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy. Sometimes all you have left is mercy. The tax collector, God have mercy on me. Again, when it, these guys had the same God, they had the same Bible, they had the same need for forgiveness, except one understood that he had to ask. He had to humble himself and ask. And then Jesus blows their minds. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And everyone in the room that was listening to the story would have said, <gasps> And the reason Jesus said, I tell you, was because nobody else was saying this. You didn't get that from any other rabbi. It wasn't common knowledge. It wasn't something they taught. Jesus was claiming authority and He was saying, I tell you something you're not going to get anyplace else. That this guy who humbled himself, though his sins were a mound, was forgiven. And the word he used for justified literally means he was instantly, permanently forgiven. Permanently forgiven. Instantly forgiven. That's what blew their minds. Because that guy was forgiven and he didn't have to do anything other than ask. He didn't have to do anything other than ask. He didn't have to light a candle. He didn't have to say a prayer. Well, he did say a prayer. He didn't have to uh, say prayers. He didn't have to offer uh, a sacrifice. But somebody did. Remember I told you they would get into um, the temple because they wanted that sacrifice that was being offered to be applied to them. Well, that's what he asked for. And, and the Bible tells us God made Christ to never sin to be an offering for us so that we could be made right with God through Christ. What we do is we ask for something we can't do ourselves. Let me end with a little story. You all know my friend Jesse. Most of you do. One of my best friends. 
He, um, he has a Down syndrome. He's the sweetest person on this planet. The other day he was here on a Wednesday night and we were at a party and he sat down. He just had hernia surgery and so getting out of a chair is difficult. And Jesse was sitting there and we were kind of getting up and he looked at me and he said, Joseph, I need your help to get out of this chair. And I'm going to be honest with you. If I had been in Jesse's place, I would have tried to figure out what can I do to not ask for help? Can I lean up on this? You know, can I get up off this table? Can I, what, what can I do to not ask for help? Without one scintilla of self-consciousness, Jesse said, I need your help. We all need mercy. The question is, are you willing to ask for it? Because there's a little bit of Pharisee in most of us. There's a little bit of Pharisee in most of us. There's a little bit of tax collector in most of us too. Mercy is there for the taking, but you have to ask. And when we're broken, mercy rushes in. Father, thank You for Your Word today. What a great story Jesus told us. So happy it was recorded and that we could look at it and it helps us even today. 2,000 years later, it still speaks. Thank You, Father. When we walk out of this room, help us to be mindful that we all need Your mercy. We thank You for the gift of mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.